<laughs> what? You want me to do it? Hold on, I gotta twerk. All right, here we go. The music of Dreamgirls shot to the top of the charts and cemented Jennifer Holliday's performance as a Broadway legend, mirroring the meteoric rise depicted in the show. Did the 2006 film live up to that promise, or was there more drama than dreams? Let's discuss. This is from Stage to Screen and Everything in Between, a musical-adjacent podcast. I'm Zach. I'm Mads. I'm Quinn. And I'm Elizabeth. I'll be completely honest when I say that I did not know this show at all. It's always been on the back of, like, edge of my radar, but uh, I never actually saw it until now. Same. Same here. I I think the number one way to describe this is off my radar. All this to say, it is groundbreaking. I mean, I, I, the, I truly had a virgin experience experiencing this show for the because uh, I had I had no prior experience going into this but it is the most kinetic electric show ever and I loved it I I thought it was exquisite yeah mm-hmm. I thought it was gonna be like one of those weird like jukeboxy kind of Jersey musicals boys. like yeah like Jersey Boys or like everyone's gonna hate me for this but like Mamma Mia I hate that show Oh, oh no. no, that's fair. That's totally fair. I, I thought that that's what Mama this Mia. was going to be uh, yeah. because I knew it was quote unquote based off of the Supremes, but and then it totally defied my expectations. Yeah. I had no idea. Oh, I was just going to say like it was so, I was so emotionally invested, which I feel like I had been missing in some of the other, other shows that we were watching. Mm-hmm. Like, this one, I was like, I am in it. I'm into these characters. I want to know what happens next. The songs were so good. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was just like floored. I was like, why Why did it take me so long to see this at all? It's exactly. been around for forever. Well, not forever. Our lives. Yeah. <laughs> in my forever. Um, and ugh, it just, I loved it. Same. I think Same. I, I want to share with you a quick note. This comes from a note that I wrote when I was watching the movie, mm-hmm. but uh, I'll share it with you guys anyways. It says, fake your way to the top was the most excited I've ever been in a movie musical. I mean, truly, I was <laughs> oh. like shouting and like dancing and, like, you know, like <laughs> rarely, you know, a musical's done well when and this was my experience when i saw spongebob music spongebob the musical on broadway literally i wanted to scream at the top of my lungs and jump out of my seat like it was that <laughs> level of like i'm not even joking i was like yeah. swinging my arms i was about i was in the avatar state i was about ready to break a window or something i was so freaking excited just don't it was hit awesome. the right spot on your back otherwise that could be a problem yes something like that yeah i don't know you guys been watching that <laughs> <laughs> i know I know exactly what you're talking about in that scene, too. I lost my mind a couple points in that song. Yeah. I, yes. Uh, yeah. I uh. cried and I laughed and just the energy was so just. Yeah. Uh. I, just, I assumed it was something that it wasn't. I always put it off. Like, it's always been Same. there. My friend and mentor, uh, you guys know Monet. Yeah. Um, he used to sing this show all the time just in conversation. He just starts singing "We Are a Family" in the middle of the garden. So, like, I always knew about it. We should have known then. We guess, yeah, he's got <laughs> honestly, he's got impeccable taste. I should have known it was actually good. But, anyways, yeah, um, you know, like what you were saying, I had thought it was something else. You know, it it had the same 
whenever there's a show or a movie or anything where there's like, oh, this trio of singers goes in, I bet somebody's going to want to do their own thing and they're going to have some dramatic like breakup within the group and it's going to be all about like, oh, we need to come together in the end. That's what we needed all along. And like, while it's got a little bit of that, that was not the focus and that was not how the story went. And I was like, I was genuinely surprised, which made me very happy because I really Yeah, it wasn't Jersey Boys. Wasn't Jersey Boys at all. Yeah, I really thought it was just going to be another, okay, here's a group and they're going to break up and they're going to have to realize that their bonds are stronger. Okay, whatever. But yeah, it was great. For sure. And there's so many different like character developments and plot things that come together in such a cool way, but it's not convoluted somehow. Even mm-hmm. though there's so much going on and so many different little sub stories, I I just it was so good, phenomenal. And the film adds to that even. Oh you know, yeah, mm-hmm. it adds a lot more history to it than the show actually had. It does, yeah. That's one of the. We'll talk about the differences, but yeah, that's yeah. one. It it definitely uh, takes a lot of great liberties, and I think it adds a lot. Mm-hmm. Hey Mads, mm-hmm. how about the history of this show? What you got? Alrighty, so Dreamgirls on Broadway opened December 20th, uh, the day before my birthday, <coughs> 1981, <laughs> at the Imperial Theater on Broadway. Uh, the music was written by Henry Krieger, uh, lyrics and book by Tom Yen. Is that how you say it? I don't know. A Yen? It's, I don't know. It's, People are going to call us out. I genuinely don't know, <laughs> know. what else this person wait, is wait, working on. I'm spell? sorry. It's E-Y-E-N. I think it's like Yen. Oh. Ian. Like Ian? Or Ian. Maybe it's pronounced like the word eyes. Maybe it's Ein, you know? Because I- Ian? I don't know who either of these songwriters are. I don't know if they did other no, stuff. No, they're super or not. obscure. Because they did great stuff for this. Like, yeah, I, are- I had honestly never heard of them before. That's why I wasn't sure how to pronounce their names. But uh, the music was by Henry Krieger and the lyrics and book by uh, Tom Yen. Uh, it was directed and produced by Michael Bennett, uh, oh, who also him. did a chorus line. Um, it's supposedly based on the Supremes and uh, the history of Motown and rhythm and blues music. Um, but Michael Bennett actually came forward and he was like, this has this is not based on the Supremes. We did not intend for it to be based on the Supremes, but I think it definitely was. I don't because know, yeah. There's way too many similarities there's for that to be a coincidence. That line up. <laughs> yeah. They denied any connections between the show and the Supremes life stories, but most people still believe that it's at least loosely based on them. Uh yeah. but it's, maybe they had to do that legally. Yeah. yeah, to, yeah. Avoid, to avoid yeah. lawsuits. Yeah. Yeah. And um Mary Wilson uh from the Supremes actually loved the show so much that she named her first autobiography after the musical. Oh wow. She wow. Yeah. It's so crazy. Apparently I mean, it's really good. I kind of want to read it, but um yeah, but Diana Ross also from the Supremes uh it was rumored that she stormed out of the show after act 1. Uh, and that she, it's also rumored that she treated the actress that played Dina, who is supposed to, who is like basically her. Yes. Uh, uh, it was said that she treated her kind of coldly when they, uh, met up in public one day accidentally. (laughs) Drama. Yeah. 
Um, but Diana Ross also performed uh, Family from Act One at her famous free Central Park concert. Hmm. So I don't know. I don't know if she liked it or didn't, but. Oh, she loved it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't know. I feel like it has to be based on them because Bennett told them specifically not to mirror the Supremes in the way that they acted the character, uh, lest they be sued. <laughs> so yeah. I'd, I'd, uh, I feel yeah. like that's a way and to say. And then like uh, Curtis Taylor Jr. is supposed could represent Barry Gordy. Yes. Because Barry Gordy was also in a relationship with Ross, just like Dina and Curtis. You know, it's. Yeah, yeah. a lot of the love triangles are mirrored. And then like in the Supreme's actual history, Diana Ross got pushed to the forefront of the group. And then uh, Florence Ballard was uh, upset because she was background and she missed shows, sessions. She faked illnesses and she gained a bunch of weight. And then she was fired for all that. And I was like, hmm. Hmm. That sounds so fascinating. <laughs> sounds like they're just covering their butts. <laughs> yeah, even I no. Mean, I mean, you know, Michael Bennett. He's the he's the same guy who said, "Oh yeah, I wrote all the music to Chorus Line." <laughs> yeah. Did that? Let the record show he did not do that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like even all of the name changes throughout history of the Supremes, like mm-hmm. they started off the like the the Pipettes or something like that. It was Ets, and they started off as the the dreamettes and then they yeah. went on to be the dreams the dreams and then uh the supremes and then they changed it to dina whatever and the dreams dina jones dina jones and the dreams and then they changed the supremes that had then changed it to diana, diana ross. ross and the supremes like and there's like five different name changes and they're all they all happen according to uh the supremes i don't know yeah. I just we feel all like know. that's too we coincidental. So we all know that it's actually based on the Supremes. Uh, long story short, I went off on a little tangent there. I'm sorry, everybody. Uh, it was nominated for 13 Tonys, wow. and it won six. It won uh, Best Book of a Musical, Best Performance by a Leading Actor in a Musical. Uh, ben Harney won that. Uh, best Performance by a Leading Actress, Jennifer Holliday, obviously. Uh, best Performance by a Featured Actor, uh, Clavon Derricks. Uh, best choreography, Michael Bennett and Michael Peters, and best lighting design. Um, who was the lighting designer? Never mind, I'll let Quinn get to Yeah, that I was going to wait. Oh, for- we, we all know who the light. Yeah. We'll talk about it. I was going to wait why- for Quinn to say it. This is probably, I'll say this, this is probably the second greatest lighting design like of all time. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a huge, huge historic lighting designer. Huge. Okay. And she's no longer with us. Ah. I'll give you that much. If you're listening at home, yell at your screen what the lighting designer is. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, uh, it closed on August 11th, 1985, after 1,521 performances. Wow. Yeah. Um, it uh, started as a project for African American singer and actress Nell Carter. Uh, she appeared in Tommy Enns and Henry Krieger's musical, uh, The Dirtiest Show in Town, and they loved her for performance so much that it inspired them to create a musical about black backup singers. I don't know what that show is. I Sounds don't know what that show yeah, is either, but apparently it, uh, it inspired Dreamgirls, apparently. Uh, they originally titled the project One Night Only, uh, mm. but then they changed, uh, 
the title to just a working title, Project Number 9, it was referred to. <laughs> um, so Project Number 9 workshopped, but it got shelved because Nell Carter left to be in a soap opera <laughs> called Ryan's Hope in 1978. That went well, I'm sure. Yep. <laughs> One year later, uh, it got brought back to the table when Michael Bennett, who was at the time basking in his success of A Chorus Line, uh, decided that he wanted to work on this show. And so it got workshop- workshopped again as Big Dreams. And at this point, Jennifer <laughs> Holliday <laughs> stepped in for Carter when she again left to be on TV uh, on NBC's Give Me a Break. I have no idea what that is either, but Nell Carter. It's about Kit Kats. I don't. <laughs> it's something that's not Dream Girls. Yeah. <laughs> And so uh, Carter left again, so then Jennifer Holliday stayed. But I did not know this. Jennifer Holliday actually left the project twice. Hmm. First, because she just disliked the script in general, and she was upset because originally Effie died in Act 1, which which I had no idea. Act 1? Yeah. Yeah. That seems like a drastic choice. Those pains were real. Right, yeah. like instead of being pregnant, it's like, oh, you're Oh, dying. you're dead. <laughs> yeah. And then she left for the second time because after they rewrote it, uh, the first time, she was upset because her role became more secondary to Dina's role. And so she was like, nah, I'm leaving. But then finally they rewrote it to expand on her character. She doesn't die. And both her and Dina are kind of more equal so yeah and that's the version we have today they wrote her a song about not leaving (laughs) (laughs) we know that one (laughs) Uh, yeah so wait a minute hold on i had a thought and now it's going away hold on just a second (laughs) wait just a minute um so what would the story have been like if effie died i wonder it hmm. was more about uh, Dina in the yeah. second. Okay. Da- and the second act was basically like all Dina's story, and the first act was Effie's story. Oh, so there so was be kind no of... redemption for Effie yeah. at all, and it just no. be depressing. Jeez. She gets no comeback. Yeah, and I mean, and however, she that just, sort of makes sense. She just gets fired and has no say in anything, and then just uh, leaves into the oblivion. It's sort of like Sunday in the Park with George, where. Spoiler, George dies at the end of Act 1 and Act what? 2, completely different, like, century, mm-hmm. you know? So it's worked before is all I'm saying. I, I would be fascinated to watch that separate version. Yeah, That's true. Same. I didn't think about that. Effie gets some great songs in the second act, though. Yeah. No. Oh, she does. Ugh. Hell yeah. Mm-hmm. So in succession to the 1981 Broadway opening, it toured the U.S. in 1983. There was an international tour in 1985. Then six years later, uh, there was a Broadway revival. Oh. Which is, I had to double check because I was like, that's that's kind of fast for a revival. Not quite oh, King and sure. I fast, but. Uh... That's true. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but yeah. Only six years later, it had a Broadway revival. Interesting. And it had only, I mean, it only closed in 1985. So it closed in 1985 and then had a Broadway revival in mm-hmm. 1987, two years later. So that's crazy. Yeah. But uh, 
It toured. Oh uh, wow! So it was when you say five years, you mean from the close from the opening date? From the opening date, not the five closing years. date. Wow! From the closing date, it was only two years before it was revived. That's another uh, young, desperate producer, I'd say, Quinn. So listen, Beetlejuice fans, all I'm saying to you right now, <laughs> hey, hold on to hope. All hope okay? is not lost. <laughs> you might get to see it. <laughs> For real though. In 1997, it had another U.S. tour, and then the 2006 film version, which we're going to talk about today, uh, another 2009 U.S. tour, and then in 2016, it finally opened on the West End. I thought it was Mm. interesting that it didn't open on the West End closer to opening. I feel like usually it kind of goes back to back, like something will open on Broadway, and then at least like a few years later be on the West End as well, but in this case, it was like 40 years almost wow. before it yeah. opened on the West End for the first time. Starring. And I don't know how well this show would play into British culture because it's such a piece of Americana, you know? That's true. But at the same time, you know, it's the Brits who are really accepting of people like Little Richard and, you know, where yes. the Brits pioneered that style of rock and roll and we accepted it because it was them, you know, as Americans. Does that make that sense? That is fat. Oh, that's that, the, that's the type of music they grew up with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised that if it, I feel like it would do well in in England. Yeah, that's why it surprised me so much. Agreed. Yeah, that's a great. I didn't think about that, Zach. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really at the at the top of my mind with the passing of Little Richard. You know, I was researching yeah, about of course. that and how much they talk about in this show specifically. There's a few moments where they touch on how black artists were having their songs stolen and redone, really vanilla by white artists mm-hmm. to get on the top forty. You know. Yeah, that scene is hilarious. Oh my gosh, that scene in both the show and the movie is hilarious. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I like died laughing. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a Cadillac, Cadillac car. Yeah, in my notes, <laughs> starting from that moment, I have a note that just says, uh, I'll censor myself, but just effing white people, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's Agreed. what you were talking about earlier. Yeah. Like, <laughs> for sure. Sh- I have that sure. several times where I'm just like, man. Uh, white people, man. <laughs> the uh, the revival, or the West End starred Amber Riley of Glee fame. Huh. I'm surprised there hasn't been, especially after the movie came out. Yeah, same. Usually, well, didn't they say they did an 09 tour? Yeah, yes. and uh, I saw some trailers for like a 2011 tour. Also, understand the years following the film's release was the Great Recession. That's true. So Mm. it's a different. But also, I mean, things that do well during and we can talk about this when we get to shows uh, later on that came out during this time. But the main thing that the producers want to do is recognizable commodities. Right. right? Mm -hmm. So I feel like something as familiar as a, a loosely historic, historized version of the Supremes would do quite well, uh, but oh well. Admittedly, a, around the same time Memphis came out, which is yeah. like a, not super, but it's relatively similar story set in the same time period. Sure. So maybe that, maybe they just, you know, we're trying to find something fresh. Either yeah. that or there was just the saturation of jukebox style musicals. Oh, time, yes. Which there I didn't think about that as well. The album of the original cast recording was produced by David Foster. I don't. If you don't know his name, he you know all of the artists that he's produced for. I'm not gonna try a name off the top of my head. Uh, the one that comes to mind is Andrea Bocelli, but he's just known for making big names. 
So he actually produced the album and it went to, uh, it went really high on the charts. I know, um, and I'm telling you was number one on the R and B charts. Yeah. Wow. Um, Is it true or false that for the music in, I think the show, not the film, they condensed it to where it could all fit on one vinyl. Like they wanted to make sure that that was possible. So that way they could sell it as a record. Or is that not true? I don't know. I, I read it, but I did not fact check it. I would, that certainly sounds believable. Yeah, I would believable. totally believe that fact. Up until 2006, when the movie was released, they didn't have the full original cast album. Um, but when they released the movie, they put out an extended edition that has all of the songs that were cut. But even that, they cut most of the score, about 50% of the score from the album, because in the show, they sing a lot more than they talk. You know, A lot of the hmm. recitative sung dialogue um, they cut from the album. And so the uh, original cast album is mainly just the songs and not much else. So for instance, uh, and I'm telling you, doesn't include the section where she's holding on to him and telling him, you know, don't go. I'm not going to let you go before she goes into tear down the mountains, down, scream and shout. You know, that section is Got cut out because it. it's a little more dialogue-y than the rest of the song. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, stuff like that. They did cut out a lot of it. But, you know, it it worked because it became a popular album. You know, it sold well. Cool. Hey, Quinn. This show is a titan i mean Mm. so many of the designers on this show worked on the most important i mean some of the most important musicals in broadway history i mean every single department was represented by a titan um specifically i had the privilege a few weeks ago of uh, listening to a webinar given by a very 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 famous projectionist projection designer Uh, known as Wendell Harrington. She is a lady who, it could be said that she revolutionized and invented the modern usage of projection design in the theater. She was the art director for Esquire magazine for a number of years. I mean, she is one of the most inspiring people. Her her webinar made me tear up. (laughs) And she talked about how she sat during the original Broadway tech of Dreamgirls behind the lighting designer Theron Musser. Oh, Uh, And for those of you who don't know, Theron Musser, it is argued that she is the greatest Broadway lighting designer of all time. She was the first to use a computerized lighting console on uh, in New York City on Broadway. She revolutionized the use of color, the use of lighting cues, the use of revealing form. Unforgettable. Every single and as well. This is just a little anecdotal heritage item, but every single adaptation of a Theron Musser show, a revival, every single designer, when talked about what is your greatest source of inspiration, they simply say, I was just trying to do justice by Miss Musser. You know, she is that much of a, of a, she's like a grandmother. You know, she's somebody who everybody looks up to as well. That's just lighting department. Every single department has somebody who revolutionized our art form. And that is why, uh, Dreamgirls is such a such a huge show Uh, for scenic design. We have Robin Wagner, who uh, designed such famous shows as the Dreamgirls revival, Dreamgirls 42nd Street, A Chorus Line, Hair, Mac and Mabel, um, City of Angels, 
uh, and both versions of Angels in America. So somebody who revolutionized, you know, artistic scenic design and, and all of those shows have their own unique style and are very, very well known to New York design. And the costume designer as well, uh, and I'm sure I, I'm not going to get this pronunciation correct, so I sincerely apologize, but Theone Aldridge, um, somebody, again, uh, who worked up until uh, 2008, uh, sadly she has passed away, however, worked on the revival of A Chorus Line, revival of Follies, uh, two different versions of Annie uh, as costume designer, and uh a revival of Gypsy, the original production of Chess, Dreamgirls. So somebody, La Cage à Fol. So somebody who truly, like all of these people, created super memorable, super blockbuster titles working together. I think this was, uh, all of these three designers worked uh, both on Dreamgirls as well as Chorus Line. So I think this might have just been Michael Bennett's A-team. Mm -hmm. But yeah. all this to say, it is... Uh, a titan. I mean, it, this show is immaculately designed. And I think it's reflected very well in the movie lighting, which we can talk about later on, which was designed by Jules and Peggy. Yeah. Jules Fisher, Peggy Eisenhower, uh, the official lighting designer of this podcast. Um, <laughs> but I think it's just one of those heritage shows. Like I mentioned, it's it's similar. We will we'll talk about this more in Chorus Line, but it's just one of those super memorable shows where a lot of people talk about if I could hop in a time machine, I wish I could see this cast on this stage at the Imperial, you know, with this team of designers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of people who went on to uh, the assistants for all of this team went on to have illustrious careers in and of themselves. So this show was very impactful for the heritage of, you know, Broadway design. Mm. The scenic is pretty open, you know, and it's it centers very much on the performances. So it would have to be... Yeah. You know, it's a lot about the lighting and the placemaking, you know. Uh, and I, I think that might be the influence of Michael Bennett because he really was a type to... He wanted plenty of room for actionable choreography right. uh, as well as he wanted his his stars to shine through, you know. So I think that might be, just be his flavor. I couldn't... I, I obviously wasn't there at the tech, so I couldn't... Yeah. Uh, you know, speak for certain, but I agree. I mean, it was sort of a couple suggested elements, a couple flown glamour items. Um, wasn't as, as, you know, realistic or, you know, kitchen sink realism as uh, the movie was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that but, famous, uh, but it was still gorgeous. Uh, that famous see-through table from, and I'm telling you, see, oh, the, yeah. or from yeah. the scene right before that. Mm -hmm. It's like a clear plastic table. Um, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Are there periactoids in the original set? I, you know, they got chorus line with periactoids. The movie, has I think they had. I watched the Tony's performance, mm -hmm. uh, and as well, the most I can deduce, there weren't a lot of photographs taken of this original production. Uh, the most I can deduce is a very good bootleg that exists on yeah. YouTube. That's how I watched uh, it. And to that theater goer back in the 80s who uh, took a what had to be a huge VCR camera know, into the Imperial right? Theater <laughs> yeah. and stuffed it into their bag Another without being discovered. <laughs> Uh, uh, don't do that because it's against the rules and it harms our industry. However, I am happy that we have a little piece of research that we could use. Um, I, I think in the, in the Tony performance, there are mirror periactoids. I mean, that is, that must be a Robin Wagner, uh, signature piece, right. uh, because those are expensive yeah. and they're used Difficult. very, are those? very, uh, memorably in other shows. For those of you who don't know. Periactoi is a ancient Greek um, 
idea for how to present scenery. Basically, it's a back wall with three different sides and they rotate. So you can create three different locations using the same. They're triangular. I'm sure if you Google it, there's probably a couple diagrams that uh, exist online. This might be a dated reference because it's not really a thing anymore. But when I was growing up and before that, they had advertisements that used to rotate in the same way. Mm hmm. So it's yeah, like, like at the mall. Yeah, so yeah. there'd be like a there'd be oh, yeah. like a billboard that would change, and it would change by having individual pieces rotate, like little mini periactoids. Mm-hmm. And and in this in this uh, in the movie, and I believe in the uh, Broadway version as well, there's a they split them up so there's gaps yeah. between the periactoid panels, and they use mirrors, mm-hmm. mirror periactoids. What a concept. Hmm. Never heard of those before. You can't even do that nowadays. If you try and do that in a set, people will be like, Stop that. Why are we doing chorus line? This chorus line, (laughs) yeah. Also, that freaking ridiculous uh, fixture wall of just blinders. Oh, oh my gosh. Imagine going on tour in the 80s with that many dimmers. And having to fly that, I believe in uh, in the movie they are source fours, but I believe back in the day it was probably par lenses. Yeah, mm-hmm. which is so hot, and each one of those is at minimum five hundred watts. Which you do the math. If there's like two hundred of them, that's a lot of power. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and they're <laughs> to bring with you on a semi truck with every single stop. There's so there's so much work to build, but it's so it looks gorgeous. Great. Yeah, so beautiful. Yeah, the- iconic. Really. They definitely take liberties, especially in the movie, but in the show, too. They take liberties with what was available at the time because I don't think, Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. I'm I'm not sure that I've ever seen an example in the 60s of a a giant wall of lights because that would have meant there was a dude in the back or a bunch of dudes in the back flipping levers in sync, you know, to get... Uh, I mean, yeah, especially like... I, I chatted with a gentleman who used to tour shows back in the olden days of lighting. And like it would, especially with a local theater you would go to, it would be not uncommon to have 40 dimmers, maybe 50. Like that was like a, a stacked house. Wow. Yeah. So you just didn't have that sort of infrastructure. No. You know, back in the 60s, that is. And it's all very, very well researched. Yeah. I think I watched in the credits. I think there's a the- theatrical lighting consultant. That's funny. I think that was the person they referred to because everything, this, the, every little ladder, everything is exactly period correct. Not a single modern fixture. Um, there's some moving lights that are actually used yeah. in the world of the show. But as a location in the movie. Yeah. They're all... Uh, they're all historically accurate, which is very impressive. I know not long after this, Michael Bennett passed away right. uh, due to HIV AIDS, uh, which is tragic. I, am I correct in thinking that this is the last show he ever worked on? It's one of them. I'm going to quickly fact check that. I believe. Yes, this was the very last show that Michael Bennett ever worked on. And I just, I don't know. I think uh, if it hadn't been, we live in a disease right now. And if it hadn't been for that disease, I think he had a a ton of great shows left in him. Uh, And that just makes me very sad. And Mm -hmm. at least we have this beautiful piece of art to remember him by, you know? All right. We have a movie to talk about, don't we? (laughs) I was going to say one small note. I was just thinking about the fact that it's a primarily black cast, but the production team is not (laughs) yes in both the movie and in the yeah not just the people who like design but not just the design team and the directorial staff but like the the creators as well Mm -hmm. the writers yeah Yeah, for a show about black songwriters writing black songs for black artists 
you know, there's not any black people involved in this. Yeah. Online. And I think that that it's can warrant a conversation on what do we what is cultural appreciation? What is overstepping your grounds? What is representing an issue? What is being an ally? And that is far more. I'm, oh, yeah. I'm certainly not wise enough to answer those questions. All I can say is I think it was useful. You know, I yeah. think what they did uh, in writing this show, I think it was uh, the, the scene that sticks out to me is in the very end of the movie where there's that little girl watching crying. Mm-hmm. I think representation on Broadway certainly matters. Oh, yeah. And just that they have that opportunity is a plus, you know, and I think it was a very. And you it's know, a positive. It's a positive. It's a positive representation. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think so. It I, very much. I'm definitely not critiquing it. I just it was a thought that I had. I found interesting because you know the show is very much about yes black culture advancing and we itself we in I mean we just did King and I. Yeah. The, the, it's it's such a easy to not do justice by a culture if you are not a member of it you know it's very hard to fall in or it's very simple to fall into that and you have to do your due diligence and i think the uh, creative team did so absolutely yeah the film the film elizabeth hit us with them there was a movie (laughs) (laughs) yes wow okay so the movie was released in 2006 and it was written and directed by billy codon who also wrote chicago's screenplay um, really yes yes oh. yeah i did not know that um and condon. then bill condon yeah what did i say codon let me backtrack let me just say <laughs> that all codon. over again <laughs> ready set yeah, here we go. start over it was written and directed by bill condon who also wrote chicago screenplay um it was jointly produced and released by dreamworks and paramount pictures i thought that and was an odd combo I thought it was too, but it has to do, I didn't write this in the notes because I don't want to like completely overwhelm like here's a bunch of facts, but (laughs) essentially when it was first being talked about making a movie, the person that had the rights was attached to, oh no, I'm going to get this wrong, but they were attached to a different company and at some point it got bought out and then it was given to somebody else and then Viacom did like an umbrella company thing and just made DreamWorks and Paramount all like one thing just under crazy Viacom business things. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so you can just cut that out or keep it. It's up to you, but business. <laughs> business. Oh, we're keeping it all. We're keeping it raw, relaxed fit. <laughs> um all right, so it's starring Jamie Foxx, Beyoncé, Eddie Murphy, Anika uh, Noni Rose mm-hmm. and Jennifer Hudson and this was Jennifer Hudson's breakout role which was insane to me because she yeah. was fantastic I had I had no idea that this was her first role in a film and in like, anything in anything yeah I guess she was a former American Idol contestant didn't mm-hmm. know that really um yeah so So Ryan got her first, old Ryan's feet rest. (laughs) (laughs) So she's fantastic. Um, Another thing that was really interesting is that when the film debuted, they did four special roadshow engagements. Oh, wow. Taking it old school. Yeah. Uh, A roadshow, for people that might not know, it's a term that the film industry uses for um, a practice in which a film opened in a limited number of theaters and usually in large cities 
before the general worldwide release. And it's made to be more of like an event and an experience. So they'll do things like some movies will even have an intermission in the middle um, or they'll sell merchandise and things like that. So for Dreamgirls, uh, they had reserved seating and themed lobby displays as well as some merchandise that you could buy at booths and a limited edition program. I would cool. so knowing the movie is this awesome. I wish I had bought some yeah. merch. Yeah, I would rock a Dreamgirls tee. Same. And roadshows are they do not happen very frequently. Actually, the last roadshow to happen before Dreamgirls was in 1972, and it was for Man of La Mancha. Yeah, oh. that's crazy. Well, that's probably why I didn't know what that was. Yes, roadshows <laughs> very uncommon now. <laughs> I explained it poorly in the last episode. This is a much better explanation of what they are. <laughs> well, you kind of name dropped it, but I don't know if we actually explained no, it. And this not was really. Yeah. A good occasion to do so since it was. Yeah, I thought it was fascinating that it had a road show. I did not yeah, think that road that's... shows were a thing at all anymore. No. Hmm. But um, I think this was speaking back to somebody's point. Um, but this production cost eighty million. And it's one of the most expensive films to feature a mainly African-American starring cast. Crazy. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. Um, let's see. I think I just have fun little tidbits. Oh, uh, but I will go on Quinn's point. The Broadway lighting team of Jules Fisher and Peggy Eisenhower were brought in to create the well, theatrical lighting techniques for the film's musical numbers. Clearly, I'm having problems talking today. It's fine. <laughs> it's the coffee. <laughs> Let's see here. Oh, and it received eight Academy Award nominations, but it only won two of them. It won Best Sound Mixing and Best Supporting Actress for Jennifer Hudson. That makes mm. me happy because yeah. the sound was to die for. Yeah. It was outstanding. Yes. I agree. It was truly awesome. Yeah, I was super happy about that. I think it could have won more, but... I didn't check what the competition was, so... Yeah. Um, they did get more Golden Globes. Like, they did win uh, Best Motion Picture of a Musical or Comedy. and the Golden Globes. Um, yeah, at the Golden mm. Globes. And uh, Best Supporting Actress again, but also Best Supporting Actor for Eddie Murphy. And he was great Fantastic, in the movie. yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No, I agree. I, uh, All right. I'm going to drop two fun facts for you. Do it. Oh, let's drop them. Let's em. drop them. All right. <laughs> First one, less exciting, but exciting for me because it's super random. Uh, the house that they use for uh, Dina's fancy rich house. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Dina and I yes, I recognized that house. They've used it in multiple shows and other movies, but I specifically remembered seeing it in The Last Man on Earth. And if you haven't seen that show, <laughs> you should watch that show. <laughs> um, and then another fun fact. Uh, Loretta Devine, who played Laurel in the original Broadway production, is in the film as the jazz singer who performs the song "I Miss You, Old Friend." Wait, oh, really? At Jimmy's wake, yeah, she's. Yes. Oh my god! I wish I'd that's known so that. Cool. She's. I mean, I recognized her. She because she's been in so many things since then. She's fantastic. Yeah, I recognized her from. It's a ridiculous horror film called Urban Legend, but she plays a police officer in that, and I immediately was like, "Oh my god, that's so and so." She Turns is out. working. We have a Broadway actress who is paid, <laughs> yeah, booked and out. blessed. Hashtag <laughs> booked and blessed. 
This cast is full of recognizable faces. There's just yeah. left, right, center. We got Oogie Boogie in there as old Deuteronomy from Cats. Ken Page. What? Uh, yeah, he's... Uh, I know who he is. He's the guy that gives Effie a chance at this yeah, club, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. now that you say that, I In see In the second it. act, yeah. He's the... Uh, are we going to talk about the most evident? Uh, Steve Urkel? Hello. <laughs> Mr. Yeah, totally. Jaleel White. Somehow I missed that. <laughs> I didn't recognize him. Oh, Steve Urkel's him. there. That's funny. Such There's some really expensive cameos in this movie. Like people who oh, show yes. up for like a minute. Got yeah. John Lithgow for one scene. Yeah. And uh, John Krasinski, probably not as expensive as John Lithgow, no. but still interesting. Yeah. They said, oh, we have this established musical. I'm going to write in a scene that helps the plot a little bit, and we're going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah. on it. Ready, set, go. I'm sure a lot of that $80 million was casting. Yeah. Because initially... Uh, Initially, Jamie Foxx wasn't going to do the movie because his salary wasn't high enough. Yeah, and then when he heard that Beyonce and I think one other Eddie Murphy. person. Okay, yeah, when they both signed on, he was like, oh, I guess this would I be guess. a good idea. I guess I'll <laughs> lower my pay. Jeez. <laughs> he, not, this is a side note hot take. He strikes me as this character in real life as to a certain extent. Who, Jamie? Yeah. Jamie Foxx? He's got yeah, a lot of a little confidence. Bit. We'll just say that. He He's plays got a it a little too well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. God, I hate Curtis. Ugh, the worst. He I mean, smashes yeah. a lot of dreams. You're, 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 yeah, he's kind of he's kind of a piece of crap. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. No doubt about that one, bud. He has and, the right idea for how to make money in the industry, but other than that, like, it's... But it's not It's just about anymore. money. Yeah, it's, it's just, not art. Yeah, it's just a commodity. I think, um, can I just say this, though, about the casting? Usually, you know, I don't think this is a, a situation of doing, like, Al Roker and Jason Mraz in Waitress. I think this is <laughs> every single star, you know, I don't think this is stunt casting at all. I think every single recognizable name in that list pulled their weight mm. and then so. Yep. I, and this is, I don't know, I'm willing, I, not everyone will probably agree with me, I thought everyone acted super well. I thought they they played. I don't. I cannot imagine this cast with anybody else. No, and I think that it's super. Is, it's super well performed, and and you know the drama is feels real. It's not at all. It doesn't feel like the TV movie that this could be. You know, it feels no. yeah. very earned, and mm-hmm. every, especially uh, the second half of Eddie Murphy's part, uh, Jimmy Early. Like oh my gosh! His, the way he plays that. Just- on, admittedly, he probably has a lot of experience with hard drugs because he uh, was famous in the '80s. But <laughs> well, yeah, he ran the club circuit yeah, for and, and it was an twenty years. Jazz. Um, but still, the way he played all that, you know, that downslide, backslide into drugs and stuff was. Uh, and the way, speaking of what's crazy, I don't know. Maybe they filmed a separate plate, but there's the scene right before he dies, and they just like isolate him in that. Oh. S- where like it looks like the entire set disappears and it's just yeah. him in that single beam. Oh of my light. gosh, that was beautiful. Super that cool. means that I I hope they did it realistically. But if they did, that means every single lamp, every single house light yeah. in that entire house had to be rewired and done on a dimmer rack. Mm-hmm. And it's just a simple fade out, and he had maybe a couple lights on top of him. It's I mean it's effective. A, it's, a, it's a wonderful uh, collaboration between the DP. The director of photography and the uh, and the lighting because you know there's 
when you're going from like a full lit set to just like a single black thing, you know, they, it, they will, you can't see anything else. And I don't know if that's a, if they, you know, touched it up later, but like you can just see him and it looks super mm-hmm. cool. They did it again um, after Dina leaves like Curtis. When Dina leaves, yeah. And they got rid of that frick- that house that you were just talking about. They made that disappear into darkness as well. Uh, yeah, it could just be how they had the lighting and then kept like the one bright and dimmed everything else. And if they had their camera settings like yeah. with the ISO and stuff, it's possible that they just did it all in camera. That'd be very cool. Without any touch-ups, but mm-hmm. I don't know for sure. And on a, it, with my experience with film lighting, you don't get to, when you're a gaffer, you don't get to make suggestions about lighting cues. You just turn on lights yeah. and hope <laughs> that it's visible through the camera. Yeah. So it makes me so happy that Jules and Peggy were there and, and that they actually had great design. Yep. And they had Honestly. to tech it, you know? They had to actually take time and it's worth every penny of an investment because this lighting is amazing 10 out of 10 lighting on this movie it puts this in chicago like over the edge you know like those scenes would be missing something if they weren't lit so theatrically you know absolutely i think it's like the perfect balance between realism and theatricality yeah what the theatricality i don't even know if that's technically that's definitely not what those numbers would have looked like in the time period (laughs) you know yeah but oh man was it so cool it 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 didn't matter because it made the number feel big, you know. I, I made a couple notes on that, especially in the first half of the film. Like backstage in the various theaters they were performing in, there would be little colors and splashes of light. Yeah. And then when they were walking in a back hallway, they were drenched in purple or they would be in green before the lights came. Just the uses of color mm. or, or the little jazz clubs where they're bathed in lavender and blue. And uh, it's just such. And I think Madison uh, said it best. They did for the show numbers, they added to the electric kinetic energy of the piece by not caring about realism. You Mm -hmm. know, they said, we're going to plus this just a little bit. And it was the perfect mood. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It was so expertly done. And I, I can't commend this director enough for making those choices and saying you know what what does lighting department have to say what are, let's look at it this way you know and it's such a bold and open way of storytelling and I, I love that it's just an example of when you embrace the theatricality of this theater show that you're adapting mm-hmm. you know if you embrace it in the right ways it can be fantastic you know a yes. lot of people shy away from it yeah, it's always problematic when filmmakers try and make it really realistic to be like, hey, moviegoers, this is a musical, but guess what? It's serious. Let's get into it. And then into they try the and make it <laughs> into the woods. <laughs> I have to explain why I'm singing right now. Hold on. Just Before I begin my number. singing doesn't mean they're not sad. <laughs> this is still a movie you're watching. Don't worry. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I'm going to sing a song really quick, and I'm still my character. But it's just going to be a song for a couple minutes. And, yeah. And, and we blame the directors, but honestly, it might be a producing thing, too. Or- it could be. It could be trying to sell it to more people because some people assume that musicals are all like how we talked about uh, last time, The King and I, where it's like, okay, this is pretty long. <laughs> When's it over? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, but I, just because we're on this topic of singing in the movie, you know, 
it was done in a really great way. And then all of a sudden there was one moment where I was like, oh, this is awkward. And all the songs up to a certain point had been performed on stage or like in a recording studio, like you watched them recording the song. Right. Mm -hmm. But then when they're in front of the car shop and all of a sudden Jamie Foxx and uh, oh man, whoever plays Cece. When they start singing, step into the bad side. When they start step into the bad side, I was like, oh, that was an awkward transition for me. Like, all of a sudden, you're not singing in this realm that you had set up for when you're singing. As the movie progressed and they did it multiple times, it got better because then it was like accepted as like, okay, this is the world we're in. I get it. But that first time, it was super jarring. And I was like, oh, no, you goofed it <laughs> i wish they had done that more yeah, because i love the idea i wish it was a little more book driven right where mm -hmm. it's literal in the moment words coming from a character's mouth which is more so how it was in the original right because right? yeah. there's a it's it's very much more in the sung through fashion in yes. the musical and that's i wish they had played into that a little me more too and those are the most powerful songs i think in the film are the ones that are not part of the narrative of being on the stage or recording a song like a lot of them are just like in the moment that a character is singing to express their feeling. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and like, I loved it, but it's just, I felt like they needed to introduce that earlier mm -hmm. in the film to make it less like, oh, this is, this is a thing now. Yeah. Like in at the, the very yeah. beginning of the film, they used all of the recording studios and the stage performances as a device to be like, this is real life. We're still in real life, but it's a musical. You know, like those locations justified it. But then I get what you're saying. Yeah, I kind of yeah. noticed that and too. In the show, that, that whole opening scene in the show is pretty much quick dialogue, but mostly sung, you know? And I think mm. if, you, if they had introduced it then at the very top of the film, I think it might have been less jarring. Yeah, I, I agree. agree with Zach. Yeah. But it, because the, the songs that are sung on stage contribute to the mood yes. and the messages and the theme. Right. But I don't think it actually, it's more of like a review, right? It's not really care. It's not a direct, like, here's an event that is progressed directly through what the characters are saying in this moment, right. you know? Like it can apply to them. Like Step Into the Bad Side was also all about how they were trying to illegally get their money to fund everything. So it went like hand in hand with that, but it didn't feel the same kind of, emotion once it was taken to the stage it was still super fun and i loved it mm -hmm. i was really into that song and mm -hmm. pretty mm -hmm. much every song in the movie um but yeah it was just a little little weird how they started it off now that i think mm -hmm. about it i think that might i'm trying to think i think that might be the most fantastical of the songs as presented in the film because mm -hmm. in the stage show you know you don't have montage, right? You can't do montage right. on stage, at least not, not in the really. same way. So they sing the song as a way of expressing we're doing these things. Whereas in the film, they're showing us in a montage them doing those things, but they have no reason to be singing that song right? while right. they're, you know, I don't know. I mean, they do have a reason because eventually they record said song, but they don't really show that. They just lead right into the song being recorded. Got it. And rehearsed yeah. in the film. So, yeah, it's, it's a little outside of the concept, you know. 
Yeah, and that's just be me being nitpicky because, like For I sure. said, the more the more they did it, the better it flowed. Yeah, absolutely. But that very first initial whoa, you're singing outside of the stage and recording studio was like, hold up. I definitely <laughs> noticed so that's something that too. they probably should have explored weird. more in the first half. Yeah, yeah. and the camera okay. like holds yeah. on them like very seriously, and there's like, pro- I feel like there's like trilling strings underneath like <laughs> little you know, tiny as they sing yeah. no i liked it i thought i don't know that's just me i was just like yeah sing more sing more yeah yeah uh, i liked it i loved the singing it just the first initial thing was for sure jarring the biggest change i think song wise in the show is the fact that they gave listen entirely to beyonce whereas in the show it's a duet between Effie mm. and oh, yeah. Dina. Um, when when Effie comes back to say that, hey, I'm going to sue you if you don't. Yeah. Then Dina and her sing this song about, hey, you need to leave this guy. I should have left him when we were together, you know, like, and they sing it together and it's this powerful duet. Mm-hmm. And there are rumors that like, I mean, Beyonce is, was already a huge singing star at this point. Of course. Um, so I guess it makes sense that they would give her her, a solo song because I think that's the only solo that she has in the movie. I'm pretty sure correct. It is. That is correct. Unless you count, well, no, because even even one night only, she still got the other two yeah. dreams with her. Yeah, she leads, but she doesn't have like a, a solo. Solo. So right. I guess that makes sense. You know, they probably said, you know, okay, you get you get you. I'm telling you, and I'll take this song. You know, um, yeah. I think it works. I thought that that song was written for Beyonce because I think it became a single on the radio after the movie came out or something. No, yeah, I agree. I I remember thinking, oh, this is a Beyonce song because personally I'm a huge, I know all of her music and I've listened to her forever. Uh, So when I heard that song, I was like, oh, that's right. I know this song. That's where this came from. So she did release it herself, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Interesting. I had also heard, I don't know if this is true, but I think it's funny because it's ironic. I had also heard that Beyonce was jealous of the attention that Jennifer Hudson got after the film was released because there's all this awards buzz around Jennifer. Yeah. This is Beyonce. According to her, she said this is the first time she felt she was actually an actress. And I think she was a little miffed that nobody cared. And they were like, man, Jennifer Hudson, what a revelation. <laughs> no, I can understand. No, that's that's an honest reaction. Which, oh, yeah, which because is not, it's just funny because it mirrors the show. Yeah, yeah. It's a little Life bit imitates ironic. art. And she didn't get nominated for anything, you know, but Jennifer won no. a Best Actress Award for I mean, her I first. I remember when this was coming out, this show, or this movie, rather, made Jennifer Hudson. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. She was... Mm-hmm lightning in a bottle yeah. i mean she was the thing i mean for a good couple months when this came out i remember i was just a little kid when this came out but it was on. huge yeah. yeah she had to gain 20 pounds for the role hmm now, this movie was an awards darling that year too it was really being pushed by all of the the producers guild and the golden globes yeah and the they had like, you know mm-hmm. for your consideration campaigns i think it was the only the only film that got nominated for Best Picture at the Globes and the producing the Producers Guild that wasn't nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. I don't know that it's a Best Picture quality film, but oh man, is it nuts! It's super good. Wait, it is. I think it was fantastic. nominated for. Best. Oh, was it? Yeah, but it lost. Okay. I think I'm gonna check. I think it might be. There's like a 
there's like a superstition that if it wins this award or that award, it's probably going to win best picture. I think maybe, uh, that's, yeah. maybe that's what I'm thinking of. True. Just like everybody, everybody tries to think the golden globes is the precursor the for who's stone win. into the Oscars. Who really yeah. cares about the golden globes? Though? <laughs> I, yeah, no, same. I hear that. Seriously. Uh, hey, I'll gladly accept one. Yeah. If, you if I ever get award one, award me. Sure, hey, yeah, I'll, ta- I'll take it. Going back to that scene that you were talking about, Quinn, where mm-hmm. I screamed at the television is when they're rehearsing with Jimmy for the first time and he spins around. They go from backstage to onstage in one move. The camera That's the exact moment I was so talking about. Good. Oh, good. That was so the most cool. energetic moment I've ever seen on screen. Yeah. Like, that was the most, my blood's, like, on the edge of my seat. I want to jump up and down. This is amazing. Super cool. You know? Oh, yeah. And Eddie Murphy can sing. Oh, yes, yeah. he can. Oh. He's fantastic. I was Very shocked good singer. at how good he was in this movie because i only know him for his goofy stuff and so when i when he first popped on screen i was like okay Hmm. all right but then he was so good it's a testament to him and all of those guys from his time period who are just geniuses they are showmen they do comedy but they're entertaining performers in general you know they're definitely they're great actors yeah they did so many wonderful the camera moves that they had, the techniques that they used. I, my biggest gripe always with like musicals that get made into movies is when they don't utilize, like if you have a movie, you can do things that you can't do otherwise. And I want you to do that, please. And this film like did it. And then some, I loved even just the reactions that they let each character have. They showed instead of told. And it made me so Mm. happy all of the looks, like in the show, you know, you have to, because the audience is far away, you have to have Curtis tell Dina, like, hey, nice dress. But in that montage, you just have her standing there with the dress, and Curtis gives kind of a look, and you're like, oh, man, is he, does he like her? Instead he, of Effie, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I loved it. All the little looks told you everything. It never told you, hey, Effie's pregnant, guys. Did you figure it out? It's just, <laughs> talk, like... It showed you everything you needed to without being obnoxious about it, and I loved it. I really appreciated that, yeah. I'm very glad you pointed that out to me because before I started this podcast, my mentality is if you're going to make a movie, try to capture as much of the show and don't get in its way as possible. (laughs) That was, and that's still a little bit of my philosophy, but I appreciate the artistic touches. The editing contributed so much yep. to the electric energy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was expertly done. Yeah. yeah. Perhaps the best. I mean, and the zooms and the and the sweeps and the the cinematography. It, like at the end of, uh, I believe it's Dreamgirls one, um, where they're where it's like sparkling stars oh, behind them star and the camera light. sweeps oh, yeah. through, yeah. jaw dropping. I mean, I I don't understand how you it's like a theater number. I mean, it's just the camera camera operator is a dancer in this choreographed, beautiful orchestration. Yep. And it's such a testament to the direction. I don't know who put that together, but it is so I've never seen that in a movie or very rarely do you see that so well done. And that is what should be happening every time. And like to your point, There are some musicals that I just love and would hate to see anything changed. And I'm just like, why are you doing this? But then to that point, it's like, well, why would you make it a movie in the first place? Like, yeah, I, you you have a statement to make with a movie. 
camera and, and per, what's that Zach? i was gonna say the camera is a voice you know camera and editing are a form of artistic voice you know absolutely and you have to use it so what's the point you if you don't have to and this isn't just a, if, if you guys don't realize if you're a non-believer like i was and you watch this movie i mean the the very first second you're engaged. I mean, it's staccato. You know, it's like you're immediately zero to 100. No, no filler. All hitter, baby. And they yep. make mm-hmm. they make use of, you know, the realism as well on top of that, you know, but they like punch it up. You know, there's like a very film noir vibe to some of the early scenes where everybody's in shadow and smoking and like there's really strong color. You know, it's uh yeah. It's a great use of the medium, you know. Yeah, it, they were very not much afraid so. to be bold, and I am very happy for that. And on, and it ends up being theatrical, you know. Ends very up, much. It so. ends up being a theatrical element to the film because they're willing to make these cool, unique things that aren't necessarily grounded in reality, but help tell the story. Yeah, I think it's the best balance of the two mediums that we've seen thus far. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I. Yeah, I I think um, it's so strong and it just exhibits bravery, you know. Mm-hmm. One of the elements I wanted to touch on a little bit, uh, a lot of of historical background that was included in the movie yes. that's not in oh, right. the the stage play. Mm-hmm. So the uh, the political unrest the of, the 1960s, of the 1960s, the Detroit yes. 67 riots, yes. Um, including that as a backdrop for this was such a important piece. And so much of this, I like to use the term Americana or just so much of an expression of the American experience, you know? And I love that. And maybe, and once again, I'll preface this. I've been watching Mad Men all week, so I've been stuck <laughs> in 1960s mode. But just seeing those little touches of just the most dynamic period in the 20th century, and the, I think only adds to it. It the enhanced the theme of the themes of the story yeah, so much. Yes. Definitely, yeah. The inclusion of the Martin Luther King record as well. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Which is another way to be for sure that it's tied to the Supremes and Barry Gordy because uh, Barry Gordy put out that record in real life. Anyways, uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Including <laughs> including all those little details because I don't think. I know the beginning of the show takes place at the Apollo in New York, but does the whole show take place in New York or is it in Detroit like the film is? Because the film is uh, primarily the, Detroit. I think it's in Chicago in the show. That's right. Yes. I think you're right. Weird. I wonder. In, in, in the show as well, uh, I, I read, it, once again, this is just through a little bit of Wikipedia research. I think as well as the movie goes to L.A. in the second half, the show goes to L.A. in the same parts. Mm. That makes sense. Through my little Wikipedia diggings. Because I wonder if that, I think that's definitely a choice in the movie to move it to Detroit because Motown is Detroit. Mm-hmm. I think that's why they did that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I wondered, I don't know my Motown history super well. Did they end up in L.A.? Because I know a lot. most of the- Did the Supremes or did the- movie did motown end up in la i wonder oh no not really no that's just a story device yeah that no that's just the path of Mm. where where those characters went uh in specific i like the connection to detroit as well because it is cadillac and it is Mm. the motor city and the connection to car culture is there so it, it just ties in so beautifully to uh I don't know if you'd call it realistic or a dramatized version of American history, but 
Whatever it is, I like it. I I'll say that. It, gra- <laughs> it grounds the story a little bit more. It gives it more to hang on to as a film, you know. For sure. Because I, For sure. I think a lot of that stuff isn't touched on as much in the show. Um, no. The historical side of it. Yeah, and, and it really, it just goes to strengthen the message of this show. Which there, I think a good rich piece of theater has a million different themes and they're all different statements. And this show has many. Uh, specifically, it's like, how much harder do you have to work if you don't come from the stereotypical white background, mm-hmm. you know, especially in the music industry? Or what role does a controlling man have in these women who are artists? Or it's like the typical Scorsese, you know, hubris arc mm-hmm. of this man who seemingly has it all, yet through hubris believes that he can prevent the inevitable from happening tragic. Mm-hmm. You know, it has all of those going for it. Definitely. It's, you know, the dangers of fame, too, you know, or of yeah, of getting lost in the fame machine, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. In the imp- It happened to the Jersey Boys. I mean, geez. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love it could those happen Italians. to you, too. I do. The Italians make an appearance in this movie too, just not in the positive. Oh, they are scuzzed. No, not a, not was, in a positive way. Yeah, when they showed up, I was like, "Who are these people?" No, oh, just the mob. <laughs> just the mob. You know, everybody was yeah. doing some mob business in the '60s. Also, that moment that sticks with me is the theme of representation, mm. where they talk about like if you're a little girl and that little girl who's crying watching her heroes for the very last time. Think that's, about that's their that's her daughter. Am I making a stupid moment? All right. Well, no, I mean no, you were making a good point. point approach. And here's how the uninformed yeah. stupid guy <laughs> roast me, if you will. I just like to what that the impression that left in my head is like. Think of all the little girls who are watching this, uh, and they get to see somebody who looks like them on the big screen and say, "I can aspire to that." You know, there's exactly. so much. Yeah, well, you know, and I think I that's think, what it touched on. Good. Okay, I was going to say, I think it's that, and it's also on a more personal level for those characters. It's her seeing her mom, and her mom had to struggle through all of her, like, that child's life for as long as she knew. Like, her mom wasn't accepting money from anybody. She was trying to get work. She just believed in her dream and was like, no, I can sing. I'm a singer. I need to do this. And, like, seeing her mom on the stage and being able to do what she loves and being successful at it, I like, ugh. It was just yeah. amazing. And so that's another Dude, reason I'm, crying. I'm sure why she was so emotional. Oh my gosh, I just teared up right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's so beautiful. And uh, Effie, such an amazing show. Effie's, I think it's important that she ends up in the second act because Effie becomes a representation of accepting and being yourself. You know? Mm-hmm. Perseverance. Yeah. Uncompromising. Yeah, because, you, know, you know, she doesn't take from the system yeah. pardon my use my, my language curtis crushed all that he for did the early parts of the career he said you know no we can't be ourselves he starts out saying we have to be ourselves we have to push ourselves and then ends up being we have to push ourselves to fit into the market we have to fit in right. we have to fit in mm-hmm. and so you yeah. know effie's effie's arc is you know the culmination of like no i have to be who i am and you know now that we've realized that you know we can't just parrot what other people are doing we 
you know, and her big voice comes in that she always had, you know, and they should have let be there at the beginning. And she finally gets to be who she is. Yeah, which is a story in history that up until recently just was not told enough about the choice you had to make as a person of color in any industry. Do I only market myself to a black audience, to a Latino audience, or do I whitewash myself to make it with everyone? Mm. That scene yeah. with Jimmy in the Copa Cabana with the... He just starts pelvic thrusting at that lady, and she's like, "Oh my god!" And they have to leave. That Oof. was another. You hate to see it. You yeah. hate to see it, America. Yeah. That's another point in my notes where I just write "f and white people, man." Yeah. Yeah. She lo- <laughs> she literally looks like, "Oh my gosh, I've been defiled." Yeah. And like, so I can't watch this. Clutches my pearls. <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh my gosh, if Elvis Presley did that, you'd be fainting or something." Like, oh my yeah. gosh. It's true. Freaking that, rich white people, and that's that was what was <laughs> happening at the time, you know. This, uh, yeah, little Richard. I, I'm bringing little Richard up because he just passed away, but you know, a lot of his songs, and they talk about in the movie Hound Dog. You know, they just took songs that had already been recorded by black artists and gave them to white artists, and suddenly they were hits. You know, yeah, figure. Talk about erasure, right? Talk about like not having an impact in the course of history. I think that's when people are talking about appropriation, that's like just a prime example of it. You take absolutely that's that's Mm -hmm. when you take something that is not yours and you pretend like it's yours and you get all the credit for it, you know, and you erase the impact of a person, yeah, Mm -hmm. through posterity. Yeah, history is written by the victors, you know, in the small sense, in that way, you know. I don't mean in a small sense, on a, on a micro scale, you know. On a very <laughs> large scale, but small application. Yes, I yes. Guess that's what say. I meant to say, yeah. As though, I think the one critique that I have is I don't like J-Hud's version of, and I'm telling you as much as the original. But the original, how, how could you The original just goes so hard. I'd, I've been I've been air drumming to the original recording of that song since I was a child. I love, I love that version. I think it's more the arrangement than her performance, but that's also the most obvious where there's like suddenly moving lights appear. <laughs> yes, but I love the. There's a lot of I don't know. We're, we'll talk a couple tech terms. There's a lot of gobos. There's a lot yeah. of like. There's a light here, but I loved I loved all of that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, it's just you're in the world and it takes you away just for a minute. You know, you're away yes. from the real, and I love that. It's it's expression. There's a scene where they're filming like a television show and they've got like go go dancers and stuff, and the it's the scene where Effie walks out for the first time. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And also totally calls Curtis bluff. He's like, "What you?" She's like, "What you gonna do about it?" And he just kind of stares at her. She's like, "That's what I thought." Oh, that <laughs> was such a good I moment. Was like, oh, oh shoot, my god. Anyways, but there's definitely like I was like, "Oh, look at that American DJ Gobo spinning in the <laughs> in the background." I was like, "No, it was like the flower one, yes! right?" It's, the, it's like the little Trinity. Dude, it's the '60s. They had flowers. I think it fit. I loved it. I actually like that Gobo. I'm, are you with me? I didn't hate it. I'm just saying, hey, I recognize that. That's definitely no, yeah. You can re- once again, we're gonna get real lighting nerd for a second. But there's like six Gobos where if somebody uses them in a stage play, it's like, ah, that Gobo. It's yeah. like, hello, yes. <laughs> old friend. Uh, yes, medium breakup A, or uh, as we at my college call it, Doritos. <laughs> <laughs> Do they look like Dorito chips? 
They're triangles yeah. and they are Doritos. You throw a little orange in there, you got Doritos on stage, girl. Right? <laughs> construction gobo. Ooh. Yeah, constru- yes. I mean, you know it. Yeah. Or the rose gobo. Like, pe- I don't know. Lighting designers out there, if you're listening, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and there's there's a there's a discussion in like, do I shy away from them? Do I embrace them? Yeah. I don't know. That's that's a discussion that is not. I mean, they definitely embrace. Show. We're going to show that backstage things are old school, but on stage, this ish is modern. You know, it was. And in the ERS wall where they had literally all source the force. color scrolls. I'm pretty sure those are just source fours. Yeah, they're all source fours with a bunch of uh, CYM. Yeah, scrollers. Wybrons or whatever they're called. Yeah. At one point, they saw they showed a thing where a gel frame like dropped out of the light. And I don't know. Is that a real thing? I've never seen that before. No, that was just the follow spot operator switching oh, gels. I, it was a fast shot. I've. I must have. Come on, I thought Zach, it was a light. Be I was ahead like, of it, guy. Why is that gel falling out of the light? Anyway. <laughs> um, yeah. Somebody didn't clip it right and it fell out. <laughs> I mean, we've talked a little bit about it, but I think Bill Condon did a great job on this movie. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there was no gratuitous dialogue. I yeah. felt like it flowed perfectly. Yeah. He wrote the screenplay as well. Um, yes, apparently, this he was wrote a, and directed it. a dream project of him, of his. Sorry. Yeah. Talk about somebody who did justice and then he did beauty and the beast remake (laughs) and said look at these representation that i put in this movie anyways art imitates life right at one point you can have it all (laughs) you can be rob marshall and make the chicago movie and then a couple years later geez guy look where we all end up you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain become a safe (laughs) filmmaker (laughs) become rob marshall (laughs) I mean, they. I guess that would be the connection. They both work together on Chicago and other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So good, though. Yeah. I mean, truly, like, I don't want to call it a sleeper hit, but geez, like, I mean, I'm sad. If that you I have not seen this so movie, long, yeah. watch it. Yeah. I think the only other fact that's been sitting in my mind is that they filmed, and I'm telling you, last, so that Jennifer oh, yeah. Hudson could build up to that moment as a character, which, which is a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. He also told her to be late to set, which I'm not oh, sure yeah. is a good idea. You don't no. need that's a method silliness. Yeah, his reasoning was to make her feel more like a diva and get more in character and like learn to be more like rude and I mean like once again, expenses that the director is just like, I don't care you how much it costs you, we're doing it this way because this is my baby. <laughs> Wardrobe and hair and makeup are sitting in the back on grumbly grumbly. I thought it was fascinating that each of the stars, like Mr. Fox had his own private costumer who's credited Beyonce. There's a few people that always do that. He's one of them. They always have like their own makeup artist sometimes too. Yeah. So they the, imagine being that as a career that like that you are the costume technician for yeah. Jamie Fox. Yeah. Cool. Pretty good life. Pretty much everybody came out of this film and did well after, you know, all of these people, of course. whether they were known or not, you know, everybody's done well. Anika Nani Rose ended up doing Princess and the Frog yes. and among many other things. Um, oh, that's why I know her name. Yeah. I was like, Jesus, I know I've heard her <laughs> name so many times. And then we have. Uh, I'm sure we'll be reminded. Also, hey, Beyonce went to uh, went on to become Beyonce, you know, Beyonce, Beyonce. She went on to become Beyonce. She released a Netflix movie. Good for her. It was very good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess she's has she she's only done like one other movie since this, maybe. 
she has been in Cadillac Records. Yes. Austin Powers Goldmember. Oh, that's right. And I do know her from Goldmember. I forgot about that. And yes. uh, Dreamgirls. I I could be wrong, but I believe those are her only three. Were and then she directed her own Netflix this? movie. Goldmember was definitely before. Okay. Um, because I think it came out in 2004. But yeah, let me double check because right. I saw was it in Cadillac theaters. Records. Now, Cadillac Records is a movie I've only seen scenes from, but I don't actually know anything about. She plays Etta James, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was that before this, though? Uh, good question. I don't Because that would actually. explain why she said this is the first time she felt like an actress in the oh. part. Yeah, no, uh, Dreamgirls was before Cadillac Records, if that's oh, the question. okay. Wow, Goldmember came out in 2002. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow, I was a little before, baby yeah. then. I saw that movie really young. Um, yeah. Questionable uh, choices on that. Well, you mean the best choices? Um, yeah, I don't. I, and I think Beyonce, uh, like, I don't know. Once again, it could be just as easily down the route of like a stunt cast, but she's a talented she lady, works, yeah. so she, she held yeah. up. Great. Oh, she was also in Lion King. Did we mention that? Uh, uh, yeah, Quinn. We said this already in a previous episode. We, we don't do not condone, condone the we Disney don't condone live action Condon remakes. You remakes. Or John you Favreau. Listen to me. Don't you listen. I found out why that movie looks so awful cinematically. It's because they filmed it in VR. They filmed We don't the need to talk about this right now, movie. Zach. You, you are clouding a fantastic <laughs> piece of work with that. We wanted to leave on a positive. Yes, Beyonce. Please. Beyonce is great in this. Beyonce, if you're, if you're listening... Uh, we forgive you. Okay, you can do. You can act in a million bad movies after this. It was, yeah, this you're is fine. great. Okay. Yeah, you can uh, do a modern day Cleopatra. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> she should. <laughs> yeah. Quinn, go. All right. So we. This is going to be a little unprecedented, but we're we are. Ne'er, we're doing both uh, a piece of cinema and as an adaptation. Yes. And I think as a piece of cinema, once again, hot take. I'm going to call this one maybe like a nine uh, Mm. Cadillac hub caps out of 10. (laughs) And I think as an adaptation, taking a very, very, very strong and beloved piece of Broadway to uh, the silver screen, this is a little unprecedented. I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm saying it, folks. 10 hub caps. Out of 10. That's our first 10, ladies and gentlemen. Our first 10. Congratulations. Whoa. Where were you when Quinn gave it a 10? <laughs> Crazy. That's a lot of hubcaps. No, it was brilliant. Awesome. Elizabeth? Um, You know, gonna parrot Quinn a little bit here, but... Uh, I'm gonna they, use the word parrot. Yeah, he used it last time. I'm using it this time. It's a thing now. Uh, (laughs) So I loved it. I had no idea how much I would love it, and I would definitely watch it again. I feel like I have to reserve my, as as a piece of cinema, I feel like I have to reserve my tens for the ones that are just like absolutely like beloved to me. So I will... I will also give it a nine, maybe a 9.5. Ooh, that's good. Yeah, I'm going to go with the 9.5 because it was amazing. I was invested the whole time. I loved the characters. I loved how it was shot. I loved that they showed so much without telling. They did everything a movie should do, and it made me very happy. 
as an adaptation, yeah, uh, for sure a 10 out of 10. Like, yeah. when I watched the movie and then when I watched the show, I felt like I was not missing anything and I loved both mm. of them equally and I didn't feel like any messages or any main themes were lost in either medium and I loved it. Mads? Um, as a piece of cinema, I'm definitely going to give it a, I would say a nine because I was so invested. I have the hardest time staying invested in movies, especially if they're a little bit long. Uh, I'm one of those people. I'll fall asleep halfway through. I was, my heart was in it. My brain was in it. I loved it so much, even though I had, and I had no preconceptions about it at all. And I hadn't seen the show. And so, I don't know. It was so good. And then as an adaptation, 100% a 10. The Mm. best musical to screen adaptation that I have seen thus far. Definitely. Even the ones that we haven't talked about. I think that they did nothing but accentuate the really important parts of the stage show. They did not take away... They did not subtract. I think they only added to it. And I think that they just balanced both of the mediums brilliantly. 10 out of 10 for me. Zing. Zanger. As the kids say, I don't know why I slept on this one. (laughs) (laughs) It's been in my, I've known about it since I was young. And then the movie, you know, I I had, like I said before, I had friends that would reference it all the time, and so I it was familiar with it. I was familiar with the music, and I never got around to watching it. And I, I don't regret it. I'm glad that I watched it now because it was great to actually watch it and analyze it at the same time and be like, man, this is great, you know, and just be able to enjoy myself, and not just be analytical the whole time. Um, mm-hmm. Man, yeah, it's just filmed so well, and the lighting, and the cinematography, and the performances, and the vocals are great. You know, there's no like we, there's not really any stunt casting of people who can't sing. Um, there's maybe people who can sing less well, but like it's fine. Um, uh, yeah, it was great. Uh, so as a piece of cinema, I'm st- probably gonna still give it like a. Mm, I'll give it a s- eight. Because it's not really, like, I don't usually gravitate towards this type of movie as a moviegoer, but I can't deny that it's well done. Uh, As a piece of adaptation, I'm going to give it a nine and a half. It's it's almost perfect. I personally would have liked to see the duet between Effie and Dina instead of just the Beyonce solo, but at the same token, the Beyonce solo works emotionally as a way for her to just tell him without actually telling him how she feels while he sits there and sulks in the in the recording yeah. mm-hmm. studio. Um so I mean it's almost perfect as an adaptation. It as you guys said it only pluses in my opinion uh for the most part. There's I don't think you lose anything. And honestly, I think personally I think this might translate better in film than it does on stage cuz I think there's been a lot of musicals similar to this since this time period. Um, 
And a lot of them get kind of stale because, you know, the sets just go back and forth between a recording studio and a house set and a recording studio and a house set. And, you know, and this one, I think the way you can flush it out on film is really a plus. So I'm going to say we will get to Jersey Boys. okay? (laughs) (laughs) and when they make a a movie of beautiful, the Carol King musical. (laughs) Oh, my God. This really is just a piece of Broadway sizzle, you yeah. know? It just has that electric... It really does. ...boldness, you know? Unignorable. It gets you invested. It gets you on your feet, you know? Mm-hmm. Watch it. I would love to see it Must live. Must see. It hasn't come around in a long time. Um, but Dream Girl, such... Dream Girls, all of them. Those girls are such good... Your uh, dream such girls, a good little boys. band. They'll make you happy, you know? And they really made me happy. I am so glad that we watched this. Me too. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's it's just and they close with Dreamgirls reprise. Yeah. yeah. And it was so pretty. I don't know. I really it, it it's one of those movies where you I think Zach put it best where you you stop watching it and it's like, "Wow, I'm glad I saw that." Yeah. Mhm. Mm-hmm. And I have never seen anything other than a bootleg, you know, so I'd have to believe that uh, the stage is very much the same impact. Right, same. Yeah, the show's great. And uh, honestly, I think it's going to be a hard benchmark to meet for anything else that we watch for a while. Definitely. I think. Hey, don't outrule Shrek, okay? Oh, man. Uh, I I guess that's technically filmed. (laughs) That is. <laughs> oh man! Somebody once told me the world was gonna roll me. I was, <laughs> and I ain't the sharpest of the shit. I was you a preteen when that song came body. out. The fact that it still <laughs> exists is ridiculous. It's still. Zach, I think what you're, the word you're looking for is timeless, and apologize. <laughs> yeah, really. They though. put them in a progressive commercial recently. I was like, what is, what is life? Anyways, ring ring progresso. Yes. Oh my That's, gosh, guys! I heard that. Toyota commercial where they have getting to know you as the song. <laughs> really? Yeah, That's yeah it's a it Toyota happened, commercial. Yeah, it happened just like today. I was like, we have a uh, YouTube TV or whatever, and so Patrick was watching it, and that the song came on, and I was like, oh my god, we were just talking about this. So <laughs> that's that's so funny. It's gonna be one of those things where it's gonna follow you for the next like couple weeks every time. <sighs> I really don't want it to though. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all that to say, we love Dreamgirls. It's great. If you haven't seen it, I suggest going and watching it now. All right. Thanks for tuning in. This is From Stage to Screen and Everything in Between, a musical-adjacent podcast. Mads, where can they find us on social media? Instagram and Facebook page are both Stage to Screen podcast, and our Twitter is Stage Number Two Screen Pod. I hope you got all that. (laughs) And it is our fifth week of advocating to the masses. If you or somebody you know is the account owner of Stage to Screen on Twitter, please reach out. <laughs> we will pay. Just, just their last tweet over. is from like a decade ago. So it's you time. Know, please, if it's you, it's time to it's take it out back. You know, and we'll leave the old tweet up. It's time. <laughs> yeah, we just can leave it. your old tweet. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Um, for a little laugh, some hot takes, some Jules Fisher fanboy. <laughs> some Cadillac. And Peggy. Hey, give Peggy and her Peggy. due. Peggy. Yeah, you're right. The second most decorated Tony Award winning lighting designer of all time. And questionable film rating systems involving 
hubcaps. <laughs> if you enjoy what you heard, please give us a like or a rating, depending on where you get your podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This is again from stage to screen and everything in between, a musical adjacent podcast. I'm Zach. I'm Mads. I'm Quinn. <laughs> Dang it, you got you. You got Dang you. Dang it. It's like that would be uh, your time, Quinn. <laughs> Elizabeth, you're holding it up. It's not no. like we do it the he same every time. I, <laughs> I think this is just how we end this one. Yep. Yeah. Bye. We'll hopefully see you in the theater soon. F it. Let's do it live. Bye. Bye.